listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Me, Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from The Cat Who Mystery Series and discuss it. On today's episode, we are talking about the 12th book in the series, The Cat Who Knew a Cardinal. Cat Who Knew a Cardinal, which was published when? 1991. And is also available digitally. It is. It is. This is one of the first audiobooks that is easily found digitally. Um, And fun note about this particular book... um, Mm -hmm. My original copy had fallen into pieces, so I thought I could get a copy from the library, and it took a lot longer to get a physical copy than I thought it was going to, so I ended up starting this book with the audiobook. Um, And I learned something. (laughs) I learned that I have been pronouncing the audiobook narrator's name wrong. His name is George George Guidel, not Guidal, as I have said in the past. Guidel. Guidel. So keeping in line with Quillerin spelled differently, with a, with emphasis on the W, in uh, the, a way. The spelling's still the same, it's just a pronunciation choice. Um, uh, very true, very true. And, uh, and, and I picked the wrong one. Well, it's, you had a 50-50 shot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a few more, but... Uh, but George Guidall. George Guidall. George Guidall. George Guidall. George Guidall, not Guidall. All right. Well, there we go. And I'm, I'm assuming, of course, he's the narrator for that book he as well. He is, again, and the narrator for this book. Um, starting at this point, there's also a secondary uh, line of these books that were also recorded. Uh, and they were recorded by Theodore Bickell. I remember that there was also a book as well. This may be, say, uh, an abridged version of one of them. But Dick Van Patten was a narrator, from what I saw. I'd have to go look that one up. Um, the uh, the George Waddell um, and, uh, and Theodore Bickell... We're the only two that I knew of, so I will have to look that. I know typically, at least in my experience of audiobooks, if it's an abridged version, that's when they can get in someone who's quote-unquote a name. I, ah, had a, I had an abridged version of a, of a Dennis Lehane book that was only five CDs, which is, you know, only 45 minutes per CD, as opposed to 16 hours unabridged, and Stanley Tucci read it. Interesting. But it was read by uh, another author, the real, the real version, quote-unquote, but read by Scott Brick, who's a very well-known audiobook narrator. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we should probably dive in, but before we do, our usual warning of, hear ye be spoilers. Indeed, indeed. And now we can say this book is officially, as of now, since we're recording in January of 2021, yeah. 30 years old. <laughs> It is September, the tourists are gone, and things are slowing down in Moose County until the Orchard Incident, Uh as it is is named in the Moose County something. So Quill has now been in Moose County for four years. Four, and he has five years. He has five to go. Okay. Well, excuse me, he has five total that he has to stay, but he's been there for four, so he's only got a year to go. All right. Um, And an idea that he mentioned on a whim in The Cat Who Lived High... The idea of renovating the octagonal apple barn on the main Klingenshone property just outside of downtown Pickaxe has actually come to fruition, thanks Mm. to the genius of Iris Cobb's son, Dennis Huff, the architect. It is a really impressive structure after its renovation, and Quill declares to the cats, this is the last time we're going to move. Hold on. I want to point out something that I love. There is a very long line of ah ha 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 you just moved into a freaking apple barn. Um, and, and in his defense, um, later in the defense. book, he do- reality does set in and he realizes that heating this barn in the winter might possibly be a nightmare. Um, so he decides to keep his carriage house apartment for now. Well, good. Wise good. Move. That's very sensible. Um, his longtime caretaker, Pat O'Dell, predicts doom and destruction since the original farmer hung himself in the structure, oh, leading to the blight of the apple orchard. Um Meanwhile, Dennis has been a huge hit in Pickaxe by renovating the barn, starting his own construction firm, mm. which is named Huff and Puff, <laughs> which is Hixie's idea, it should be mentioned. Or he'll blow the house down. Well, it also helps people pronounce his name because apparently no one can pronounce his name. Anyway, he's also a hit with the ladies, which is a bit of a problem because he still has a wife and child down below. Oh. Whom he has not seen in months. Oh, dear. <gasps> Quill has, for the sake of the cats, apparently learned some cooking skills. Um, he starts off the book, Boiling Alaskan King Crab Legs, Removing and Dicing the Meat Before Serving It to His Furry Gourmands. Which is a far cry from his usual claim of push-button coffee and uh, and reheating in the microwave. I want to be a cat and get Alaskan King <laughs> Crab Legs. Exactly. So the big thing, the big news in Pickaxe right now is it's closing night for the famous history of the life of King Henry VIII. <laughs> 
Shakespeare, <laughs> um, which has had an incredible run by pickaxe standards, despite naysayers claiming that there would be more bodies on stage than in the audience. Um, the show has run four weekends, 12 performances with almost no empty seats, which is a great that's, run for any show. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Quill, as the local drama critic, wrote a good review for opening night. And uh, now that the show is closing, wrote, wrote a wrap up com- com- commending the audience for their good taste. I have never heard of a critic doing that. No. Um, and complimenting, of course, the actors on their portrayals. Although it turns out this is so he can snub the director twice. <laughs> the director, Hilary Van Brook, oh. uh, refused to be profiled in the quill pen and committed the unbelievable sin of bringing a woman from Lockmaster in to play Catherine of Aragon for the show. Oh, my. It's community theater. You don't bring somebody from another town in to play a major role. There was a small theater festival that was done regionally on the Western Slope that involved mostly small mountain towns, but the biggest town was Montrose, which has a grand total population of, I believe, maybe 20,000 people. The actors from Montrose were considered by some people a huge deal just because it's a bigger town than whatever. So it's very much, oh, these are the Montrose actors. Oh, oh my, oh, well. They, they, <laughs> oh, they, some of them may have gone to, to Chicago. I didn't, it's a very, <laughs> not New York, but, you know, a couple steps down. <laughs> anyway, so Cole is finishing this, um, this wrap up for, for the something. And suddenly he is inundated with actors because they decided to host their closing night cast party at Quill's place without telling him. In the barn? As a barn warming. <laughs> um, there's a bit of a fuss when Quill realizes he's wearing his PJ and robe, but rationalizes it, rationalizes it because the cast looks like hobos themselves. <laughs> Lillian Jackson has a very specific idea about what actors wear to rehearsals and, and shows, and apparently we never wear anything nice. Well, in the, in the, previous, clo- in the previous book where rehearsals came up, yes, they yeah. have rehearsal clothes, which yeah. I've never heard of. Yeah. Ratty jeans, worn-out plaid shirts, and sweatshirts are as dressy as she credits us. Um <laughs> And and while, to be fair, I I certainly have seen my fair share of people wandering around rehearsal in those clothes. I've also seen people in, you know, thousand dollar suits because they came from their high profile jobs. Right. It runs the gamut. You can be someone who's going to be, you know, dear friend of ours. She prefers to be in yoga pants and a sweatshirt. And I know someone exactly the same kind of thing works downtown Denver and he needs to be in a three piece suit. Exactly. It's not everyone has a change of rehearsal clothes in their locker. Or ne- or needs or wants them. Some people just don't want them for the show. Anyway, um, regardless, 40 people are now converging on Quill's barn and they are stunned into silence by architectural magnificence. Mm. And then they go party. <laughs> um, there, there is a lot of drama about this, ca- about this cast. Not only did the director not cast someone local for Catherine of Aragon, he played Cardinal Wolseley himself. Ooh. The person, however, who most deserves to be pissed? Carol Lansbake, who is the president of the theater club and who got conscripted as the assistant director in Queen Catherine understudy. Because since Catherine lives in Lockmaster, which is a 60 mile, which is a 60 mile one way drive. So this it's a two hour round trip. Sounding more and more um, like Montrose every time exactly. we talk about um, it. <laughs> but since Catherine lives in Lockmaster, she's only there two nights a week. So Carol has to do the role the other nights. Oh. And... Van Brook didn't give her a performance. Oh, that's low. That's just rude. That is just, yeah, that that is common freaking courtesy to give if the understudy if, one performance. If you're going to make them do that much, that many of the rehearsals, right. absolutely give them a performance. Anyway, oh, you're going to get a lot of theater side gossip on this. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, we should probably give it that. <laughs> that would be more important than the spoilers, I think. Yeah, for this one, yes. <laughs> Our mistake. All right. Anyway, Carol gossips with Quill about some blowups that happened between Dennis and Van Brook during rehearsal, which Quill shares that he's had some tantrums from Dennis over the barn as well, which Quill allowed because Dennis is talented and and the end result is absolutely amazing. Uh, the same Portrait cannot, architecture artist. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the same cannot be said of Van Brook, who, while getting good results in his position um, as director and principal of the local high school, um, he is an abrasive, mean-spirited jerk who the students and parents call horseface. Um, he's not a very attractive man, apparently. This is... Hillary Van Brook. Oh, this is Hillary, the director. Ah, yes, yes, Hillary Van Brook. Um, he also wears turtlenecks and sports coats, <laughs> which frankly, in Moose County, might as well be full on goth. Um, <laughs> the, the, these are not the things that you find. He's wearing um, a beret and a riding crop. Pretty just much. a step below that. Yeah. Um, he also unfortunately wears a rather distinctive hairpiece. Oh, no. Um, according to Quill, in Moose County, quote, men are expected to have the real thing or none at all, unquote. So this guy is setting everyone's teeth on edge just <laughs> by the way he looks. Um, the party ends at Coco's insistence. Yow! <laughs> you gotta love listening to the audiobook 
uh, reader read that and, and have to do all the yowls and clicks the of the cat. Yeah, oh. exactly. Well, I'm sure that must have been a joke. Oh, it was fun. Um, I, you know, I. Side note, I don't usually do audiobooks just because I can read faster than the person reading it can do it in the book, uh, can do it in my ear. Um, so I like to read, I, I like to read, if not a physical book, then a digital book. But uh, but it was really fun to have the, uh, to at least take some time and actually listen to how these books are read. It definitely gave me some slightly different perspective on how I made my notes and <laughs> it was interesting. Interesting. So anyway, the party is over. Quill's feeding the cats. It's about two, three o'clock in the morning. Um... But Quill notices something and brings Quill's attention to the fact that a lone car is now sitting in the bar's parking area with its lights off after everyone else has left. Hmm. Quill eventually has to take a flashlight out to investigate at Coco's insistence. And he discovers Hillary Van Brook slumped over the wheel, dead from a gunshot to the back of his head. Oh, jeez. He blew his hairpiece off. (laughs) In small town fashion, Quill calls the police chief at home to report the crime because it's Moose County. Um, Uh Also because the paper doesn't have a deadline he's trying to beat, so they won't miss out on the story if he calls them second like they would down below. (laughs) Um, So Brody comes in to talk to him. He mentions seeing, uh, Quill mentions seeing a vehicle pulling away before he noticed Van Brook's car. And he thinks it might have been a truck or a van due to the configuration of the taillights. Who pays attention to that? Um, But he notes that the taillights were vertical and set wide apart rather than horizontal like you would see on a car. Hmm. I did have to look this up, but it's true. Um, Also turns out that that mystery... Car, van, whatever. Um, Sideswiped Quill's mailbox on its way out. Oh. Brody thinks this is going to be an easy case to solve. Well, I don't think it is. (laughs) As experience has taught us, that's not going to be the case here. Usually not. Why write about the easy ones? (laughs) Very true. So that morning, and remember, Quill has not gotten a lot of sleep because everyone left around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning that he had to call the police. Mm -hmm. So he's getting to bed around 6, 7 o'clock, which is right when everybody else is waking up and calling him. Oh, jeez. they're wondering if they should be worried for the most part, if they're going to be suspects in this, because as we mentioned, most people don't like Van Brook. No. Um, but especially Wally Todd Whistle, who, as we remember, does sets for the theater club. Um, <laughs> he got expelled just before graduation, um, two years ago, by the way, uh, for a prank that he or one of his friends pulled. They put a taxidermied skunk on Van Brook's chair. Oh. Um, the principal threw a hissy fit and refused to let him graduate. But it's Wally's mother, by the way, who calls to the surprise of no one. Um, <laughs> Quill manages to placate everyone, get a little bit of sleep, uh, and then meets with Larry Landspeak before church to talk over Van Brook's reputation in the community. Okay, oh killed on a um, Sunday. Yeah. Well, yeah. For, first thing in the morning, Sunday. Um, l- no one, but no one like this guy, as I've said. And Larry sums it up best with... There is enough collective guilt in pickaxe this morning to sink a battleship, which was a great phrase. <laughs> that is. Now, quick question, just to clarify. Wally Todd Whistle, we we did see him before in the previous Arsenic and Old Lace book. Is that yes, correct? Yes, exactly. He's gotcha. the one who made the taxidermy bear. Oh, that's right. That's right. And, that's right. Uh, and whose mother, uh, Quill, had to make the comment about, uh, I've never managed to interview two people at once. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Mrs. That's Todd right. Whistle is a bit of a talker, so it's not a surprise that she called not, not Wally. <laughs> so while all of this is happening, Polly is in Lockmaster for a wedding, so Quill takes uh, Hixie Rice to dinner at Tipsy's Tavern, um, the one named after the cat, mm-hmm. um, to get a little bit more of a feel for the gossip. And Hixie and everyone else seem to think that Van Brook was involved in drugs, which is why he got shot. It's always um, du- someone. It's always drugs in these small mountain towns. I, I it's got to be drugs. Oh, it's drugs. But then the gossip turns. <laughs> oh. She mentions that Dennis's wife doesn't seem to be trying very hard to sell their house down below, which is why she hasn't moved to Pickaxe yet. Hmm. Um, and that she noticed that Dennis went out early the morning of the murder and hasn't been seen since. Mm. This we find out because it pays to live in a gated community with an observant gatekeeper. Because <laughs> Hixie went and asked. That's the kind of person she is. So after this, Quill starts chatting with the cats, uh, as he does believe in intelligent conversation for his cats, mm-hmm. um, stating that it's, this is usually the type of crime that's solved quickly or never at all. Hmm. And he doesn't think it's an inside job or drug related. So he starts wondering about Van Brook's history and why someone like him would end up in Moose County or even Lockmaster. Turtleneck and everything. Exactly. And hairpiece. Um, <laughs> thanks to the K-Fund, uh, Van Brook could do more with the school, but even his success alienated people, including the theater club, where basically the reason they put on Henry VIII is because he all but demanded it hmm. with himself to do as director, because he felt that they needed to do, quote unquote, something more serious than their usual fare. Okay. Gotta love that. Um <laughs> 
He rudely dismisses their concerns, conscripts the carriage house where Quill is still living at this time as extra dressing room space, and decrees that the final scene of this play is unnecessary, and the play will end with Catherine's death. Um, Basically railroads them all into whatever he wants. Okay. Um, He's late to rehearsals, like over an hour late one Mm. night. Um, And Quill, that happened to be the night that Quill popped in to listen into the rehearsal. Van Brook literally chases Quill from the theater, despite outrage from Carol and Dennis, because, well, Quill owns the theater. He can Um, come in if he wants to. To be fair, this also means that Quill knows the building and he sneaks into the balcony to watch the rest of the rehearsal. (laughs) Um, This is a masterclass in how to be hated. Van Brook is rude, biting, attacks dear little Eddington Smith, um, our our used bookstore owner. Sweet little man. Um, he attacks him because he won't fight back. Um, oh, jeez. And he's he's quiet. You can't really hear his world, his lines. That's why he's playing the secondary cardinal that nobody cares about. Um, and he is only kind to the woman from Lockmaster. Her name is Fiona Stucker. Um, and he ignores everyone else. All that aside, somehow, this show comes off. And it's another success for Van Brook. So everyone is just... Not, I yeah. Well, we've, we've all done shows where... It, we just wanted it to be a disaster. We just wanted it to be a disaster, but it's also we've done shows where, okay, we're not getting anything from the director. The cast has to work together with each other. Yes. Um, and I think to a certain extent there is that. Um, but we will later find out um, that this uh, Fiona Stucker just has a really good memory and will do literally anything Van Brook tells her to. <laughs> um, so she's saying the lines exactly how he wants her to. She's moving exactly where he tells her to. I mean, it's it, it's a little bit of a Henry Higgins situation. Pygmalion um, kind of thing. Clearly. Hmm. Um, in other news, we meet the uh, titular Cardinal, who apparently comes every morning to chat with Coco. And later, Bushy arrives to photograph the interior of the barn. Now, this is mostly for insurance purposes, but uh, also because, again, the architecture is supposed to be spectacular. So right. more pictures. Show it off. And Bushy is and Bushy is the best. Um, so while uh, so while Bushy works, Quill heads off to Ed's editions to see if uh, Eddington Smith has found a copy of something that he's uh, that Quill has asked him to co- try and find. It's Quill's personal best-selling book from twenty years before called City of Brotherly Crime by James N. M. Quillerin. He used a middle <laughs> initial in those days. Uh, apparently, there are such things as professional book detectives, and they have not turned up anything, so Quill asked Ed to keep an eye out when he gets anything from... Because Ed gets gets all the books from various estates when they are closed sure. out. Um, so he, he asked Ed to keep an eye out them. <laughs> um, no such luck on his book, but Winston, the shop cat, recommends a biography of Sir Edmund Backhouse. Now, according to Eddington Smith, uh, Backhouse was a British Orientalist, lots to unpack in that phrase, um, and a bit of a mystery man, which, frankly, from everything Quill is learning, is starting to sound like Van Brook. Um, It should be noted that uh, Backhouse was actually exposed as a con man, and his source material for his major works on the Qing Dynasty were actually forged by Backhouse himself. Um, And this will come into play a little bit later. Quill takes the book. Can't work, can't work into a bookstore without making a purchase, and I understand the sentiment. Um, quite checking in on the local gossip while he has breakfast at Lois's luncheonette, he notes that people really aren't sad about Van Brook's death. Um, they're more worried that someone they know will be arrested for the murder. jeez. Oh, <laughs> There's always been that one person, whether it's a famous person or whatever, that's just, oh. Oh, that's dear. A, that's they're a shame. Dead. That's a shame. Yep. What's for dinner? <laughs> Um, on his way back, he stops at Amanda's design studio to chat with Fran Brody, who's able to tell him that the police found foam rubber in the car, which was used to make a makeshift silencer. Huh. Um, Fran also gets to complain that the huge order of custom window treatments that Van Brook had ordered for his house had arrived that morning, um, the morning he died. And now Fran has to sneak the screens onto the property so the studio can collect from the estate. <laughs> um, she offers to show Quill around when she goes to deliver them later in the week. Um, and Quill is kind of wondering at this point if Coco maybe knew that Van Brook was going to be shot in the back of the head or whether he was just mesmerized by the hairpiece. Because <laughs> when Van Brook came to this party... Mouse! Um, at the shock of, to the shock of everyone, apparently Van Brook did no socializing. But he came to the party after closing night. Hmm. Um, so he's at this party and Coco was just staring at the back of his head hmm. intently. Um Quill at the time was just worried that Coco was going to leap down and try and try snatch ch- it off his again. Head. <laughs> again, mouse. <laughs> um, and then finally, he stops by the something offices to learn that Van Brook is being cremated and sent to Lockmaster at the request of his attorney. And Dennis, by the way, still missing. Huh. Interesting. 
So we get back to the barn. Bushy has finished the barn interiors. And then he mentions that the cats were in just about every single shot. Um, remember, this is this is after they tried to take pictures at Bushy's studio right, down to in the Lock portrait, Master, And the cats were not having a single bit of it. And the come out of the basket. Um, so he suggests that they try a studio portrait again and invites Quill down for the fall steeplechase in Lockmaster. A steeplechase, by the way, is the original name for a horse race that went from town to town, literally chasing the steeple. Um <laughs> I went to grad school in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, had some experience with these. And Lockmaster is is a lot from this description, a lot like Lexington. Mm-hmm. So, um, so lots of horsey people. It'll be horsey fun people. Horsey people. Yes. Um, <laughs> turns out that this is a great plan because Quill uh, has decided to open the barn to the public for that weekend, uh, benefiting the library. And he's really not interested in being in the building while most of the county wanders through his new home. He's also, as we've mentioned, susceptible to flattery. And when Bushy's <laughs> wife, Vicky, mentions that her grandmother, Grummy, uh, is a big fan of Quill's column, he's suddenly looking forward to the trip a lot more. Well, of course. Um, but there's a problem. Because, once again, Quill is without proper attire. Again? Yeah, you see, he lost his good dark suit in the Casablanca explosion down below. Um, and he doesn't own a dinner jacket. So it's off to Scotty's men's store to rent one, so he thinks. Scotty, like the good salesman he is, correctly convinces Quiller that his life will be much happier if he just purchases his own. Scotty also shares that somebody saw Dennis coming out of the shipwreck tavern in Mooseville. Pretty wrecked himself, um, and definitely in need of a shave. Hmm. Interesting. That same day, Hixie gets a hold of Quill and reports that Dennis's van was seen driving along the lake in Mooseville and turning into the driveway of Quill's cabin. Oh. Um, turns out... Quill uh, lent Dennis the cabin so he could go and uh, be alone while he was working on, excuse me, on the barn before he rented his own condo. Um, But Quill and Hixie then head off to find Dennis and they miss him at the cabin. They head to Indian Village where Dennis and Hixie have apartments along with other notables in town. Um, Fortunately, Hixie has a very good rapport with the manager and convinces them to give her Dennis's key so they can go check on him. Hmm. Quill thinks that his home answering machine might have a clue. So they go to his apartment and sure enough... There is a jaw-dropping message, which Quill records with his brand new pocket tape recorder. Um, (laughs) They head back to Pickaxe, and they find Dennis's van parked at Quill's barn now. And Dennis himself is hanging from the rafters. Oh, no. The message was from his wife, telling him not to come home, because his son doesn't even know him anymore, and she's filing for divorce. Oh, no. It's bad enough that when Brody calls to get orders for the body... His wife basically tells Brody that she wants no part of Dennis, dead or alive. Oh, God. Yeah. Jeez. Um, Quill now, of course, needs to replace his dark suit as well as purchasing a dinner jacket. And he's really annoyed about it. So. Always. Always. <laughs> of the important stuff. After this, there is a brief scene with Polly, who's back from Lockmester and apparently glowing after this wedding. She takes a call with Quill in her office that is uncomfortably intimate and later Quill sees pictures because of course Bushy took the photos um, of the wedding and sees her dancing with a red bearded man in a fancy dress that he's never seen before jealousy works both ways with these two it must be an aphrodisiac maybe or something (laughs) um so the Van Brook estate uh, is now being settled, and we learn that Hillary Van Brook was a professional name, uh, theoretically assumed while he worked in New York as an actor, um, because his real name was William Smurple. Okay, that's a good change of a name, I just have to say. <laughs> I gotta agree. I gotta agree. Billy Smurple, you get out of that cookie jar. It's a good change. Good change. It's a good change. <laughs> with that name, um, Quilson. With that name, Quilson. Between shit house. Sorry. <laughs> With that as the name, Quill continues to be very suspicious of Van Brook's motives for moving all the way to Moose County. Um, does hang along with Fran when she is, installs the custom shades to see if he can learn more about Van Brook. Mm-hmm. Um, his home is very strange by Moose County standards. Um, there's a futon downstairs and rooms full of sealed cartons of books. Hmm. Um, and a room full of growing equipment and dying plants. Well, no one's watered them since Van Brook died. Of course. Um other than confirming they aren't cannabis, which, by the way, side note, I'm pretty sure this was my first encounter with a scientific name for cannabis. <laughs> Strangely, what a shock. The nerdy the, the, the nerdy girl who's, uh, whose father is a public defense attorney in town wasn't offered pot all that much. I can, I can imagine that not many people are going to be coming up to the Ramsdorf kid and offering her a joint. Nope. Nope, nope, not going to happen. So I really didn't have much experience with this, but I remember that this was the first time I really realized cannabis, pot, all of these different names were the same thing. So Quill 
other than knowing that it's not pot, mm-hmm. um, he has no idea what these are. So he pockets a blossom and leaves with Fran to go to, uh, to go uh, hang his new tapestries. Mm-hmm. Um, this was another thing that he had mentioned mm-hmm. when he was down below about possibly getting some tapestries. So he um, he's had Fran order some pretty incredible um, modern looking tapestries. Uh, they're huge. Um, they're apparently hung with tack strips, which hmm. are basically strips with little pointy tacks on them. Sure. Um, turns out, by the way, Yum Yum likes to pull these apart. So um, <laughs> all the better, by the way, that uh, he's taking the cats with him when he goes to Lockbuster. So she will not be home while people are wandering through. And she might get tempted to kind of flick. Just sort of at them. Exactly. <laughs> So, Quill and the cats head south to Lockmaster, settle in at the Bushland home. We meet the editor of the Lockmaster paper, Kit McDermott, and his wife, Moira. And <laughs> who should join the party but the former Queen Catherine, oh. mysterious Fiona Stucker. Okay. Um, offstage, she's small, she's mousy, and accompanied by a hardy man with a red beard known as Steve O'Hare. Oh. By is... the way, turns out he was the one dancing with Polly at the wedding. Okay. Um, huh. He's a horse trainer for the Amberton Farms, and Fiona's son, Robbie, is riding one of the Amberton's horses. Uh, his, the horse, by the way, is named Son of Cardinal, so we've got Cardinal's everywhere we've got the actual bird we've got a horse named named mm-hmm. son of cardinal we've got the cardinals in henry the eighth ding 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 so many dings <laughs> um anyway so fiona's son robbie is riding uh riding son of cardinal in the steeplechase apparently he also steve also puts out a newsletter called stable chat edited by mrs amberton um <laughs> which the cats promptly shred <laughs> multiple times oh my um tells you what they think of that they do not they are not a fan uh, Moira, by the way, shares that Steve is um, a, quite the womanizer and after and is definitely after Mrs. Amberton, who is much younger than her very wealthy husband. Um, mm. So plot thickens there. There is a lovely breakfast chat with Grummy, um, who is, as we mentioned before, Vicky's grandmother. Yep. Older lady. Quill always gets along very, very well with older women. Um, and men, to be fair. Um, mm-hmm. He just likes people of the older generation. He later says that this is because he never knew his own grandparents. So he really... Chance is, to connect it, with them. He's interested in, in connecting with people of this particular generation, which sure. is really nice. Um, it's, yeah, it's actually very sweet. But he... But so he goes to breakfast with Grummy, takes the cats up to meet her. It's a very, very sweet scene. Um, and Quill at one point believes that um, Grummy might be the person to con- to uh, convert him to bird watching. Polly's tried. It hasn't worked well. Um, <laughs> the Quill who knew a cardinal. Yes, the Quill who knew the cardinal. Um, so after this lovely breakfast chat, Quill leaves uh, the cats with Grummy and heads to the race course for the steeplechase. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't get the enthusiasm for, for watching the horses run. Uh, ends up chatting with Fiona, who is mostly just concerned about her son riding. Um and he lets his natural nosiness turn uh, loose. It turns out that she was Van Brook's housekeeper when he lived in Lockba- Lockmaster after meeting him at the restaurant where she used to work. And like I said, he's clearly trying to Henry Higgins her, telling her to read improving books, coaching her through the part of Catherine to do it exactly as he told her, and then randomly offering to put her kid through college, but only if he studied Japanese. In, um, okay, huh. According to Van Brook, apparently the future belongs to people who study Japanese. This That's a very late 80s, early 90s exactly. trope. That was in a lot of fiction, not just Die Hard, but oh God, there was a it was a Michael Crichton book, but also a Sean Connery movie. It was like a pretty common theme. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and Van Brook is definitely going along with it. Um, so back to the steeplechase. Uh, the group comes all together to cheer on Robbie in his race, and it works. He wins. Yay. Hey, Robbie. Um, but unfortunately, the happiness doesn't last because when they get back to the bushlands, they find Grummy dead in the elevator with oh. Yum Yum at her feet. Oh. Now, Yum Yum didn't kill her, did No, 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 no. There is a bit of backstory with that. One thing that Grummy confessed, had confessed to Quill when they were having breakfast together was that when Vicky and Bushy are out of the house... The house itself was uh, was built by Grummy's father. Okay. Um, very old house. And Grummy has lived there all her life. Mm-hmm. She will sometimes wander through the house and relive memories for herself. Mm. Um, but one that she doesn't always do is going to the front door and receiving the telegram that her son died in Korea. Oh. And Quill's best guess is that that's what she was reliving. And this particular time, it was just too much for her. She got in the elevator and and died. Oh. Um, so very, very depressing. Very, um, yes, very sad. So under the circumstances, Quill does not end up needing his uh, dinner jacket. He grabs the cats and they all head back to pickaxe. Mm. The something is running an ad 
for uh, a $50,000 reward for information leading to the capture of Van Brooks' killer. Wow. The police know that Dennis didn't do it, um, despite what the community seems to think after Dennis killed himself. And they're trying to get eyes on who might have. They really have no idea. Uh, Fiona ends up calling Quill on Steve's behalf to see if he'd like to buy the Amberton horse farm. He would not. Um, <laughs> but he agrees to meet with her and Steve and meet Robbie if they come up to pickaxe. Coco, scatter- Coco has been scattering um, type blocks, typeset blocks. From um, the, that you would put in the paper, right? Yes. Um, Quill has started collecting antique typeset blocks of, hmm. of animal cuts. And his current one is rabbit, O'Hare, skunk, and a horse's head. <laughs> so, um, so the Coco, big bushy beard is yeah. suspicious now. Yes, Coco is trying to communicate with Quill. <laughs> um, so they arrive. Steve is bombastic and apparently expecting Quill to just invest sight unseen on his say so, and is really surprised when he doesn't. Um, it also turns out Steve's allergic to cats Ooh. and horses, apparently. But yeah, he works with them. But as he worked okay. Yeah. Um, The Siamese take full advantage of this and basically run him off. (laughs) Um, He leaves another copy of Stable Chat behind, and Coco again shreds it. Good Coco. Um, Then Steve really caps off his his assholishness. That's a Um, mouthful. I know, but but it's appropriate. He shot. He takes a he takes a BB gun out of his truck and shoots the cardinal on Quill's property. Oh God, dude, no. Yeah, just shot the bird. No reason, just because he likes to shoot a red bird, as he says. Jeez. Okay, fortunately for Quill and for us as a reader, Mildred Hanstable is the next guest, um, which puts Quill in a much better mood. Good. Um, even ex- and she's actually she's actually able to explain a certain um, phenomenon. So Quill did this laundry, and all the clothes from a certain load have come out a golden yellow. Hmm. And what's notable about this is. These are all the clothes that Quill washed with the shirt that he had on when he was at the Van Brook estate, and he put that flower in his pocket. Right. Turns out that that particular flower was a saffron orchid, and the saffron got into the hot water wash and dyed everything, everything yellow. Everything color. So Van Brook was growing saffron orchids, and if you've never looked at the price of saffron, it's very, very expensive. It's just as a, yeah, as and, a spice. And, and it, 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 it's expensive now. Imagine what it was like in the early 90s where it was really hard to get a hold of. Jeez. Um, you know, that was a, it, that was an incredible cash crop to have mm-hmm. growing. Um, and not illegal. So, you know. <laughs> unlike, unlike said cannabis. <laughs> unlike said cannabis. Well, the, le- the reason that Mildred is there is because she's there to pick up Quill and uh, go judge Hixie's latest idea. Um, Hixie came up with the idea of a Tipsy the Cat lookalike contest. And Lyle this is Compton a professional, is... No, this is a professional little Sebastian impersonator. <laughs> not little Sebastian. Jeez. Um, so they're out with with um, with Lyle Compton, who's the third judge. Lyle, um, Lyle, who's the superintendent of schools, has to confess to Quill that Actors' Equity has no, has no record of Hillary Van Brook. Oh. So he lied about that. Um, but there is some good news. Uh, it turns out that Van Brooks will deeds his estate, um, what's left of it, to the Pickaxe school system. Some good news. Yeah, yeah. Well, considering he has something like forty thousand books in those boxes that have never been opened, mm-hmm. that'll be a, that'll be a good bonus to the library. Later, Quill. Uh, after the cat situation, we'll talk about that later. Um, after uh, after that, Quill invites himself along with Susan Exbridge uh, to handle the Van Brook estate. Um, she's going through and she's looking at all of his. Sure. Uh, his supposedly genuine um, Asian art and furniture and everything else, uh, it's expected that they find a bunch of fakes. Hmm. Um, but Quill volunteers to open all of those boxes of books. And he brings Coco along just to see if he can suss out anything suspicious. Sure. It's a long slog through boxes of books, mostly because he keeps getting distracted. Um, Susan finds all sorts of treasures, although, as we said, um, many, many are forged. Um Quill finally attracts Quill's attention to a book called Memoirs of a Merry Milkmaid. Hmm. The book is hollow and conceals Van Brook's catalog of his books. Some are marked with red dots. Quill takes a few Walter Scott novels home from the uh, boxes with red dots and discovers that the books from the red dot boxes are filled with counterfeit money. Interesting. So he had a legal side job and a very illegal side uh, job. Yeah, very not so. Interesting. So the mystery man of Moose County gets more so by the day. Um, We get a lovely distraction when Ed Smith drops by with a surprise for Quill. He's found City of Brotherly Crime. 
Oh, Yay! found his book. Yes. Quill is thrilled, but Steve is on his way back, apparently, um, hmm. to, to continue trying to talk Quill into buying the Amberton farm. Um, so Quill convinces Ed to go sit with the cats while Quill meets with Steve. He's clearly, Quill is clearly trying to, is clearly intending to trap Steve into some kind of confession because this has become Quill's MO. Mm -hmm. Um, He knows that Steve is likely the killer because when Steve came with Robbie and Fiona, he asked what happened to Quill's trees. Trees which had frankly been intact on the night of the orchard incident and only recently fell due to a storm. Hmm. If Steve had never been to the barn, as he claimed, and how would he know if the the trees had fallen? So Quill starts by confronting Steve about a terrible accident at the Amberton farm. Um, the reason Steve is coming and not Fiona and Robbie is because Robbie was injured when a horse fell and the mm. horse didn't make it. Robbie's in the ICU with Fiona right now. Jeez. Um, and mentions that he did some research and found out that Steve had a history of drugging racehorses down below, which is why he had to retreat to Lockmaster. Ooh. Um, and finally goes in for the metaphorical kill. Um, Steve claims that he's a good shot, drunk or sober, referring to the cardinal that he killed. And Quill then asks, were you drunk or sober when you killed Van Brook? Huh. Steve tries to claim that he was at a wedding in Lockmaster dancing with Polly, which we technically know, but Quill's already gotten him to confess that he could make the 60-mile round trip in less than, 60-mile uh, one-way trip in less than 50 minutes. The barn party was over at 3 a.m. The wedding shenanigans ended before 2. Steve hmm. pulls a gun on Quill, but before he can shoot, he is smothered by the tapestry from above. <laughs> Eddington Smith helped Yum Yum and Coco loosen the tack strips Yay, holding it in place at just the right time. <laughs> and then Quill sits Steve over the head with the frozen rabbit in his freezer. <laughs> frozen rabbit. There's another story on that one. <laughs> so Brody and the cops arrest Steve, obviously. Quill gets a call from Vicky Bushland and Fiona, um, who pass along that Robbie, uh, who passes along what Robbie thought was a deathbed confession. Good news is Robbie's going to survive. Good. Um, but Van Brook had a will designating Robbie as his heir until he dropped out of school and uh, refused to study Japanese. And Robbie and Steve somehow got the bright idea to kill Van Brook before he could change it. Okay. Um, Fiona called to turn Steve in, meaning she gets the $50,000 reward since Steve is now in custody. Uh, and the gun used on Van Brook and the gun used on Coco's Cardinal are a match. Hmm. Not a BB gun, apparently. I, I misspoke. I was going to say, um, a BB gun would have not... No, actual gun, both types. Gotcha. It should be noted, I know nothing about guns. That's totally um, fine. Anyway, um, so after this, Van Brook is, has been tacitly revealed as a fraud, um, although the counterfeit money ring really isn't publicly known. Um, Quill and Polly reconcile again. Mm. A new cardinal couple moves in, bringing with them their traditional call of whoit, 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 whoit. Whoit. Yes, whoit. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, lovely, And lovely. that is our latest installment in Moose County. Goodness, a lot going on. A lot going on with this one. Um, And it's a really fun, th- this mystery particularly is really integrated into uh, the community uh, and what happens. So a couple of notes. Um, we, we, we're going to talk about Polly here because uh, we have her notes. As I mentioned, she's been attempting to qu- convert Quill to bird watching. Mm-hmm. Um, he buys a bird guide from Eddington Smith because it's vintage with 200 colored plates and it's only a dollar. I don't <laughs> think she's winning this one. No, um, no. She should, however, have taken Quill to task um, for his description of his heavy breathing when Fran Brody as Anne Boleyn appears on stage in her coronation oh, scene. Uh, her jealousy is then repeated in this book over the young women in the theater club, which as Quill thinks on what he misses about theater. I am pleased to say that when he's thinking about what he misses about theater, the young women don't actually feature in his list. Polly, however, breaks a date with Quill to have brunch at the Palomino Paddock and Lockmaster after the wedding. Something that, quite frankly, if he did it to her, she would be furious. Mm-hmm. Quill is just irked. Um, but then she tops this rudeness off by calling to tell Quill not to call her late at night since she's just going to go to bed early. Okay. Um, Quill then gets jealous when he hears how much she enjoyed her time at the wedding and the brunch and overhears, as I mentioned that before, that decidedly intimate conversation with a mystery person, which we later find out is Steve. Steve um, mm-hmm. Once again, Quill and Polly's relationship seems very unhealthy, seems to be a mutual abuse or jealousy is an aphrodisiac, something like that. It's, um, Yeah. Quill then decides to torture Polly about about knowing that she was flirting with Steve O'Hare. Um, and they start to have the what are we going to do about us? What do you want to do conversation? Never, which never gets completed. We do have um, the first mention of Polly's librarian friend in Lockmaster. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Shirley. It was her son's wedding. And Shirley, by the way, is responsible for breeding the furry hollow-legged demon cat that is currently known as Bootsy. <laughs> Polly's pride and joy. 
We get our first words from Derek Cuddlebrink. Um, we've mentioned him. He's the extremely tall busboy who works at the Old Stone Mill. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has started to think he might want to be an actor now, uh, now oh. that he's been in the, the show and got to play multiple roles. Um, there's a really funny moment where apparently there is a scene when Catherine of Aragon looks up at her executioner and says, this man may I never see again. Mm-hmm. That was being played by Derek, who had at this point played four other roles in the production. Uh, Van Brook had to cut the line to avoid getting a laugh at the death scene. Thought that was fun. Um, we are reminded that Quill is a baseball fan. He's, he's a Cubs fan. And um, Polly is not. Um, Carol Lanspeak tries to convince Quill to take uh, to, uh, to join her and Larry on a, a trip down below, um, saying that she and Polly can go shopping. But according to Quill, Polly doesn't like that either. At least that's Quill's guess since her wardrobe doesn't interest him, apparently. Again. That's a weird, weird thing flex. to focus on, but okay. It's like she doesn't, she doesn't go shopping, therefore she wouldn't like to go shopping. I'm sorry, but if you flew her down to a major city and said, here, go shopping. I'm sure she I would. I suspect it's, she'd do Moose it. Moose County is not known for its mall. Exactly. Um, the, the Landspeak department store is excellent, but not even but not the, Yeah, but it's not, the, it's not the Hill Valley Mall. So Van Brook, um, this guy loses... So many points on so many friends. Um, From the start. Yeah, pretty much. Um, But particularly, um, to me, by dismissing the beloved Pennsylvania German shrunk as a reworked Austrian piece. Snot. (laughs) Quill correctly wishes that Iris was still around to set him straight, um, but that she'd probably just fought over him trying to feed him, let's be honest. Um, He did, however, add Shakespeare to the high school curriculum, um, although that benefit is canceled by his love of self-aggrandizing meetings per Roger McIlvery. We also get some very good side news. Um, like I said, this book is very much about the community. Uh, and if you remember, Mildred Hanstable's husband was in jail after trying to kill Quill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's finally free. This rotten, Her rotten, smelly husband has finally died in prison. Great. Also, Fran Brody has finally moved out from her parents' house to live as a single woman. Her father is not pleased. Would not be pleased. I no, don't no. Think. <laughs> Traditional Irish father not going to be pleased that oh, this little girl Lord, is, no. is living out is, is, is living out on her own. Um, apparently, her siblings have all gotten married, and he's wondering why Fran won't. But you know what? She's a career woman, um, and this is the nineties. <laughs> Sorry, all I have in my head here is the is the line from First Wives Club. It's the nineties, Bill. Downsize. <laughs> nothing to do with this. It's just the first thing that came to mind. Well, it um, is indeed the nineties when this is written. Exactly. So it can it can apply. We also need to talk about poor Hixie. Hixie is still the bad luck queen. Um, she is the only person who can get in a two-car accident with no other car in sight. That She was supposed to meet uh, Quill for dinner that one night, and she was late because oh, she got why. in an accident. Um, oh, geez. And then we have her brilliant idea on the Tipsy Lookalike Contest, which runs into a bit of a snag. Apparently... <laughs> There's some debate on Tipsy's original coloring. Um, the portrait that hangs in Tipsy's tavern depicts her as white with a black hat patch and black feet. Um, but historical records and a photograph show a cat with a hat patch, but white feet. <laughs> Apparently now, a woman at the senior care facility is confessing to painting the black feet to give the painting more oomph. It was the depression she needed the money. So now Hixie has to try and recover by offering two prizes for these lookalikes. So you have the traditional, and then you have the, uh, the then you have the traditional, and then you have the portrait. Um, this all ends about as well as you'd expect. Trying to judge fifty cats. Fifty cats. Fifty uncooperative Ooh. cats. Um, Quill, Mildred, and Lyle have to escape from under a table um, to get away from the hordes of cats and their admirers. Um, as I mentioned, Quill's culinary st- uh, skills are under a bit of attack, an attack. Uh, he's getting a lot of harassment about his coffee. But, you know, then he, of course, busts out the making uh, the Alaskan crab. crab legs right. for the cats. There is a hilarious moment with our favorite WPKX, um, because apparently they have a new announcer with a very strange style who reads everything up until the end of the sentence, which apparently makes, to Quill, makes Quill want to punch him in the teeth. Hello, Americans. <laughs> Paul Harvey, good day. <laughs> now, I mentioned at one point that people have a really hard time with Dennis Huff's last name. Um, again, it's Huff, which is spelled H-O-U-G-H. Um, and Quill is the only one who manages to pronounce this correctly, except for, of course, for Hixie, who came up with the idea of Huff and Puff, Puff. with that rhyming idea to make it easier. But instead, we get who, ho, huck, so on and so forth. It's terrible. Well, there is an actor who, a British actor, he was the original Alfred in the Tim Burton movies. His name is Michael Goff, but it's spelled like, but it's spelled very similar to Derek's name. For the longest time, I thought it was Michael Goo. Yeah. Just because of that, it wasn't until I actually heard someone talking about him in a director's commentary, oh, I've been saying this name completely wrong. Yep. Because you read that and it doesn't, yeah, you think cough, but... Cough doesn't, it, it, it's cough, it's draft, it's 
draft. It's whatever. Exactly. It's it, it's confusing. So Huff and Puff is a great idea. Yeah, Huff and Puff is a great idea. So go Hixie on that one. Um, we're gonna I'm gonna dive into some theater notes because there's a lot of talk about how Van Brook manages to pull off this particular production. Mm-hmm. Um, he casts uh, high school kids as all of the courtiers, and he does this really he brilliantly manages them by having the high school kids bust the theater just before their entrances and taking him away right after, <laughs> which is the best way to handle a crowd scene when you don't have a lot of space backstage. Right. Um, William Jackson Braun decides to wade into the who wrote Shakespeare debate um, oh for the first time. Um, it's well, not for the first time. Actually, there's been a couple other mentions before. Um, someone on the play reading committee de- declares that Henry VIII reads like it's written by a committee. Um, and she likes to jump in here and there and has several characters defend their favorite positions. Polly, by the way, thinks a woman was Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> just because there are good speeches for women. That's her reasoning. Because she believes that a woman can write good speeches for men better than a man could write good speeches for women. Honestly, sure. that's a take. I Shakespeare being a woman, that's a take on the entire debate. I have never uh, oh, heard really? it myself. Oh, oh, I've gotten a lot of them. Oh um, no, I, I, it's, I subscribe to the shocking fa- the sh- the shocking belief that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Yes, yes, it is shocking. <laughs> There's also a lot of mention of the rivalry between Moose County and Lockmaster Counties over football and everything else. Uh, um, uh, and re- uh. it should be remembered that Van Brook came from Lockmaster. Um, they technically stole him away. Um, but if you're wondering if Lockmaster's sad to lose him, Bushy puts it best because they said they were afraid that he'd get tired of pickaxe and they'd have to take him back. <laughs> All right, into our sign of the times. Um, we, of course, have the answering machines, Quill's pocket tape recorder, actually picking up his mail at the post office again when his mailbox gets smashed. Um, <laughs> Derek and his new girlfriend go roller skating. Um, and my least favorite. So Kit McDermott uh, tells Quill that Steve harassed slash groped Moira at a New Year's Eve party, and she was pissed about it, understandably. Kit decides that he needs to defend it by saying it wasn't serious. He was drunk. He mm. likes his liquor and he likes his women. Yeah, Kip, that's not an excuse for harassing or groping someone. No, it's not. There was also something I, I groaned earlier when the answering machine was first mentioned with Quill checking the message and getting it about uh, poor Derek's wife. I groaned only because, God, I remember answering machines. Yep. And how much of a pain in the neck they were. Just because they had to record the message, had to get the tape, and you could only maybe save about maybe eight or nine messages if needs be. So exactly. It was, just, uh, it was, a, it was a rough. Yep. Um, it wasn't rough. It was just one of those things like, you know, I don't miss, I don't miss it. I don't either. I really don't. Um, we have a deep, deep, a deep book nerd cut here. Um, <laughs> so in the middle of investigating the Van Brook uh, estate, Quill is, you know, I mentioned that it took Quill forever because he kept getting distracted. Um, there is apparently a thing to compare Dickens and Thomas Babington Macaulay, who was a contemporary of his, to see who uses more consonants and uses more vowels. The common uh, typesetting, uh, the, the common theory according to a typesetting historian claims that Dickens used more vowels. Um, Quill finds that it's the opposite, actually, while he's comparing the two books. This is why he got nothing done. If looking for the amount of consonants and vowels, then that would be slow progress on anything. Exactly. Um... <laughs> So somewhere in there, as I mentioned, Coco was knocking off these vintage printing blocks uh, Mm -hmm. of animal pictures. As a side effect of Coco knocking off the rabbit cutting so many times, Quill decides to get a rabbit for the cats. Um, Doesn't know how to cook it, but, you know, (laughs) that's why he has people like Mildred in his life. Absolutely. Um, And there's a slight discrepancy in the size of this rabbit. Um, It's it's described at one point as roughly as long as a baseball bat. Okay. um, Resembling a concealed shotgun. As Quill wanders through pickaxe and tortures Polly at the library. And then goes home. And then he tosses it in the freezer. Now, unless he has a giant deep freezer, um, which it does not sound like he has, uh, I'm not sure how he's throwing a whole frozen rabbit in his freezer. Maybe and then a, he's pulling it out and just handing it to Mildred. Maybe it's a chest freezer, perhaps? Or? Well, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a giant deep freezer. Um, but I even see. then, it would take some effort to take something as long as a, uh, as a cleaned rabbit... Because um, they're really long. If you're talking about something about the length of a baseball bat. That's that's pretty long. I, yeah. I just imagine rabbits as being just, you know, small, scrawny little things. Yes, but so. remember their legs are really long, as are their ears, so that when they're skinned and they're skinned, okay, but, and, right, when they're skinned and hung. Every, if you're including yeah. everything, true. Yeah, anyway, moving on. Still, though, but that's... I still yeah. don't know how he's, throwing, how he's throwing the whole rabbit in his freezer and then pulling it out and then beating Steve over the head with it. <laughs> See, I didn't think frozen rabbit meat. I thought it was just a petrified rabbit that he found and no, was no, in the no. freezer went, to give it a actually, proper burial. He actually went to a butcher and got a, got a rabbit out of his deep freezer. Um, they got it out of the deep freeze, and that's what Quill took home. 
So you've heard me mention Bootsy the Demon Cat before. Um, we get a lot about how Bootsy, so this is our cats will be cats. Right. Um, Bootsy is considered to have a hollow leg. There is so much feeding of this poor little kitten. Um, but it should be noted that Quill can at least feed water and brush the kitten now without getting bloodied. It's good. Um, Quill, uh, as we mentioned, was worried that Coco was staring at Van Brook's hairpiece. Um, he was also additionally worried that Yum Yum, uh, now noted as Yum Yum the Paw, would <laughs> would swoop down and steal the hairpiece and hide it in her commode. <laughs> Apparently, that's what she likes to do. Um, as we mentioned, uh, the cats the cats contrarily end up in every single photo for the insurance purposes, uh, right. but refuse to come out for the social editing. Um, <laughs> it's on their terms. Exactly. Um, and then Lori Bamba, once again, tries to suggest something that Quill do with the cats. This time she suggests uh, that he entertain the cats with bubbles. <laughs> and they are unimpressed. Lori is, again, quickly losing her reputation as a cat whisperer. Where's Jackson Galaxy when you need him? Exactly. So cats will be cats. What do you give this as a paw rating? All right, for paw ratings, I do give this three paws. Three I really, paws. I really like this story. And this the, is... based on the fact that um, I read my copy literally to pieces, I would safely say this is one of my favorites. Yes, absolutely. Well, this is the first three uh, paw rating we've had in a while. Uh, it, yeah, it's been quite a while. Um, but here's the thing. I think the side story of the theaters and Lockmaster... I like them much more than the actual solved mystery. Sure. Uh, th this mystery is really petty for my taste. There's no grand revenge, no secret life reveal, no big secrets. It's just, let's kill him before he gets the money to somebody else. <laughs> that does seem pretty petty and seems kind of just, not a throwaway, but just, eh. It, it's, you know, people have killed for worse, but it's... They've killed for better, too. Yeah, they've certainly killed for better. And it just... It doesn't make it the most compelling storyline in this story. Hmm. Um, you know, we never get to see... You know, Van Brook's secrets are never really revealed. So he remains the Moose County Mystery Man. Um, well, especially for such a character who has so much just build-up and... Yeah, so much vitriol. To, to exactly. just fade away to nothing. Uh, that was a little disappointing. And I have a feeling we're not going to hear much more of him since obviously he's no, dead. But he's, he's dead. I think he gets like one or two little side mentions uh, in a future book, but nothing, nothing particularly serious. Hmm. Um, and, you know, his money has gone to the school system. It's being used and that's all. It's no, that's good. Happen. Yeah. No, that's a plus. So and that's any, my thoughts on that one. Any other final thoughts on this one before wrapping up? <sighs> you know. It's very clear that Lillian Jackson Braun loves the theater mm -hmm. um, and loves Shakespeare and loves wading into those kind of crazy debates. Um, so, so it's a lot of fun. And I know that as a kid, when I was reading these books, this was really my first encounter um, with some of the theories about Shakespeare being mm -hmm. written by somebody other than Shakespeare. Right. Um, or the some of the background work that went into how you would stage a particularly large show. I was only just starting to get into technical theater at the time. So I wasn't totally aware of all of these peculiarities that you would need. So it's it's fun to go back and read this now as someone who's been working in the theater professionally um, for the mm -hmm. last decade or so of my life. And it's really interesting to see how differently I react to these to these parts of the stories. Um, Probably picking up on things that you would not have necessarily gotten the first time around. I absolutely. Think. So no, that's a. It's or even the first five times around. But obviously, <laughs> I still love the story because, again, I read the copy to pieces. To pieces. And we had to get an audiobook, and then we had to get another physical copy. So it was, it, a became, it, was it was an odyssey to get a <laughs> copy of the book, but well worth it. Indeed. Indeed. Well, with that, thank you for listening to the Cat Edited Podcast. Our next episode is going to be for which book? This is going... Our next, uh, our, our next episode when you join us will be for The Cat Who Moved a Mountain, which is the second of the travel books as I've referred to them. Ah, yes. So hopefully please join us for that. In the meantime, I'm uh, Susan Romsdorf-Terry. And I'm Luke Romsdorf-Terry. And until next time, happy sleuthing. And stay nosy, my friends. Bye.